0: That's heritageradionetwork.org slash 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: During this time, it's more important than ever to support our friends and neighbors in the restaurant industry. Restaurant Workers Community Foundation has set up a national COVID-19 crisis relief fund. The money they raise will provide direct relief to individual restaurant workers Support other nonprofits serving restaurant workers in crisis, and offer zero interest loans for restaurants to get back up and running. Visit RestaurantWorkersCF.org to donate today. And if you need a little extra motivation, you can DM your $20 donation to RWCF's co founder John DeBerry on Twitter, and he'll give you directions for making a signature quarantine cocktail. Donate now at RestaurantWorkersCF.org.
2: Hey, hey, you're listening to Eat Your Words on Heritage Radio Network, and I'm your host, Kathy Arroway, reporting to you live from my closet in Brooklyn, not at our headquarters at Roberta's Pizza, unfortunately. But, you know, if you can just take a moment to flash back to about two months ago. So before the coronavirus shut down restaurants to dining customers and, you know, shut down much of social life in the U.S., Let's just try to remember that the narrative that we've been hearing so much about in the past few years when it comes to restaurant culture is how immigrant cuisines and I'm gonna say particularly Asian immigrant cuisines were being uh, you know beautifully and lovingly interpreted by this bold, smart, innovative generation of chefs in America so You know, I'm talking about folks who were subverting tradition in favor of this highly personal sense of authenticity to them and just connecting with diners and home cooks who also saw no boundaries um, to their tastes, to their cooking, to flavors. And um, also one of the prevailing narratives uh, that we've been seeing a lot of was that finally, finally, more Asian cuisines were being recognized as serious fine dining institutions, winning awards, winning Michelin stars, etc. cetera. So I got to say that Korean American chefs and restaurants have played a huge role in this. So, um, you know, this, I guess, Asian dining renaissance that I'm talking about. So, you know, everyone from household names like Roy Choi and David Chang to fearless chefs like. Edward Lee, Dookie uh, Hong, Dennis Lee of Namugaji, Cory Corey Lee of Bennu, uh, Rachel Yang of Jule, Suhi Kim of Insa and The Good Fork. And, you know, Korean cuisine doesn't exactly have as long of a history in the U.S. as maybe others do, like Chinese, for instance, but it seems to have really grown up quite fast. So... Speaking of brilliant creative minds and chefs of Korean cooking, I'm so honored to have a chef who actually received the first ever Michelin star for a Korean restaurant in New York City. That was his restaurant Donji in Midtown Manhattan. He also has a sister restaurant Hanjan, and he has a first cookbook out. I'm so excited about it. It's called My Korea: Traditional Flavors, Modern Recipes. So, thanks so much for coming on the show, Hooni Kim.
3: Hi! Thank you Hi. so much for having me, Kathy.
2: Yeah, I'm. I'm sorry that we're just on the phone, but you know, <laughs> we're trying to do what we can do. And uh, you know, this book uh, was a, like a long-awaited uh, book of yours since you've been such a, a well-known chef. Um, and I'm sorry that it came out at this time when you can't do, you know, in-person interviews, tours. <laughs> But first and foremost, like, how are you doing and how is your restaurants doing right now, given this crisis?
3: Oh, wow. Um, that's that's it's sort of depressing. <laughs> yeah. um, Danji is closed for mm. as of now. It's in the theater district. So we closed as soon as the theater closed and we um, decided to do takeout delivery. Uh, Mm -hmm. But because I have two restaurants and Hanjan, my second restaurant, is a little bigger, uh, we decided to just pull all our resources there. Um, So I have staff from Danji and as well as Hanjan um, now working at Hanjan to feed uh, 160 families each week. Um, And we we don't do... Like the call in internet uh, app deliveries. Right. Uh, because, you know, 30, 000, 30% for us is, is a big deal. And we just figured out doing the math that we're not going to make any money uh, okay. when we have to give 30% of all our, our revenue to these apps. So, what <laughs> we decided to do uh, was uh, make a meal kit for uh, maybe a family of four, would be two, three dinners. Uh, Or if somebody is is a couple living at home, it might be five meals. Um, So we deliver uh, ourselves to uh, families living in Brooklyn, Queens, and Manhattan uh, five days a week. About 30 to 35 deliveries a day. Um, And we've been sold out. You
2: you sell out? And by saying yourselves, like your chefs, your your staff, they're going and delivering? Uh,
3: Up until last week, it was me. (laughs) <laughs> and my manager, my manager would be the one driving in my SUV, uh, and I'd be the one going up uh, to the buildings and dropping the food off in front of their uh, apartment doors, and then wow. texting them, telling them, "Yay, the food's outside." Um, yeah, and it was the, it was it was uh, sort of the only way we uh, we figured out that we could survive and and mm-hmm. be able to pay uh, or hire some of the staff back. The first week we did it, the first day we sold 10. Um, mm-hmm. And that first week we sold 80. And when we first started, it was basically me, my manager at Danji, my manager at Hanjan, and my chef at Hanjan. So it was four of us. Um, two were cooking and two were delivering.
1: Mm-hmm. Um,
3: and, and that was the first day. Uh, and as of now, we, have, we were able to hire back 12 people so far um and you know week by week we're hiring more um and and our goal is to hire as many people as we can because ultimately these people depend on feeding their families uh, through my restaurant and that was my biggest concern and it still is
2: chef that's that's really fascinating so the more we order of these meal kits and um family meals i guess uh the more staff you can hire back, is that right? Yes, and 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 it's
3: not just my restaurant; it's every restaurant. Mm-hmm. The more mm-hmm. you can order from them, the more work they have to do, and um, the more work we, the more work we have, the more staff that we need.
2: Right? Do yeah. you think that? Uh, first of all, I'm so about to order one. <laughs> that sounds amazing. Um, but do you think that this pandemic, I mean, will lead to some sort of creative? adaptations, I don't know, meal kits, these dinner ideas, maybe some dishes that just work better for this format that you Um, might keep around? I don't know.
3: Well, for me, it was because it wasn't a one meal uh, delivery. It was meant to be several deliveries. I had to choose dishes uh, that kept well in the fridge or kept well in a freezer. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, Mm And, and those dishes, dishes tended to be sort of the, the homey meals, the traditional stews, uh, the marinated meats that we could keep mm. in the freezer. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, very traditional food. And, and they tended to be more popular with, mm-hmm. with, my, uh, with the families that ordered. So that's sort of what we're doing. It it's may not be the most creative. It's definitely not composed. Yeah. Um, I know yeah. that fine dining is having a hard time adapting, mm-hmm. um, but you know I think the traditional Asian foods where texture is isn't there isn't too much contrast there isn't crispy there isn't mm-hmm. you know all these different colors it's 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 you know the one pot meals tend to keep mm. well yeah. <laughs> in the fridge yeah. and those are the ones that are popular
2: cool so it's like you can like kind of reach into your bag of tricks and be like you know what let's focus on this for a while (laughs) because it fits the
3: moment yeah uh-huh and what else worked was um you know we gave very detailed instructions on how to warm it up Mm -hmm. uh, because some of the braised dishes texture is important and if you warm it up too quick or microwave it you still get the the flavors but the textures will change dramatically Mm -hmm. it'll get stiff the meats will get hard um so we gave very specific directions and our customers loved that because it wasn't really cooking to me (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) but to them it was because they had to follow these directions um and the food was better than just microwaving if they warmed it up or took their time to warm it up uh per what the directions said. And me having just finished written this cookbook, I was uh, able to (laughs) write in easy uh, directions. Uh,
2: Uh That's great. Yeah, Yeah. it was fun. Oh my goodness. You're going to give blue apron a run for their money. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, It's amazing. And, and, you know, so speaking of your cookbook, this is really, really one of the most beautiful and uh, thorough, I think cookbooks I've seen in a long time. It's, um, you know first of all the striking cover now mm. it's simple it's beautiful it's natural it is a piece of napa cabbage or a half of a napa cabbage head yes why did you decide on that for the
3: cover i had to i had to fight for this and yeah. i am okay. so glad my editor melanie um, sided with me Because most of the marketing, most of everybody else was like, this isn't very appetizing. Mm. Um, But, you know, for me, there have been so many cookbooks out. uh, Mangchi's cookbook and and some of the chefs that you've mentioned. Uh, Many of those people, uh, chefs have already uh, published cookbooks. Um, And, you know, Korean food, like you said, hasn't been around the U.S. as long as Chinese but there are so many Korean restaurants now and there is, you know, people like Korean food, people know Korean food is delicious. So, Mm -hmm. um, it wasn't my big sort of purpose to convince people Korean food is delicious. Mm -hmm. People know Korean food is delicious. I didn't have to show like a hot piping spicy stew in the front cover. That was so appetizing that would, uh, and that would be the big draw to the book. Um, Many writers and chefs have already done that for me. Yeah. Uh, So what I wanted to do was sort of explain that there's a lot of technique when it comes to Korean cooking. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, Korean food is not easy to cook. Mm -hmm. Uh, We can try Mm -hmm. to make it much easier than it actually uh, is, like Mangchi's doing it. But Mm -hmm. if you want to do something really well, and properly it takes a lot of time it takes a lot of um very different than restaurant cooking or european cooking where it's measured out and 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 sort of you need specific temperatures for exact specific times that's not what makes korean food uh difficult but what really makes it difficult is you're dealing with live uh ingredients that Mm. do not have the same salinity like uh A table salt does Mm -hmm. every soy sauce every brand the salinity is different
0: so Mm.
3: you know there are instructions in there that'll tell you uh, a cup or a tablespoon of soy sauce but that all depends on what kind of soy sauce Um, and in that way you know you have to feel your way through the recipe Um, Mm. and making kimchi man it's it's at least a two week process before you can even taste something that's good and acceptable as kimchi. Um, mm. so, you know, it's not easy. Yeah. Uh, and I wanted to let people know that, um, so many books because we're Koreans and because mm. we know Korean cooking is hard, uh, difficult and exotic. I think a lot of the books in the beginning and still so we simplified a lot of the Korean, uh, recipes, yeah. um, but with my book, I wanted to sort of share the whole story, mm. um, not the simplified mm-hmm. version, but the traditional version, uh, the real Korean version. Um, and I've been doing that with my restaurants for so long. I felt mm. like it was time that, you know, we put it in writing.
2: Wow. Yeah. Thanks chef. And I love how you don't shy away from traditional recipes and ingredients. Like, um, like for instance, in the, in the first section, uh, you know, of appetizers, you have a recipe for a homemade tofu. Mm. Um, so homemade tofu with uh perilla sauce. And, uh, you know, y- you say, you know, you can buy tofu, but you know, a lot of, a lot of folks make it and, um, it's just different. Uh, and then, of course, you have a, a recipe for raw blue crabs too, mm-hmm. which is <laughs>
3: um, yes, you know. And, yeah. and I would not have put those recipes in the book if it wasn't so popular at my restaurants. Ah, yeah,
2: um, okay.
3: And, and it That's was surprising true, but, uh, yeah. how popular, uh, especially the raw blue crabs, uh, were. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It, definitely seasonal but we have it every spring, summer at Hanjan and they were sold out every week and we had to have people reserve it. Um, And, you know, experiences like that sort of allowed me to bring out a lot of these exotic, very Korean traditional uh, foods that you would not see in a typical Korean restaurant in New York or LA. But, um, you know, the U.S., Especially New York, I think a lot of the diners now want the real deal, yeah. uh, they don't want the watered down uh version of ethnic food. This isn't twenty thirty years ago where ethnic food had to adapt. No, mm-hmm. they want the real thing
2: mhm mm. and it seems like you are 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 uniquely um position to to deliver that as uh you you write in this book that um you grew up going to an island that your father was from called Soando yes which you said was like going back in time people grew chilies and dried it to make goju karo the chili flakes and and had chickens and you said it was a far cry from the food in uh new york city koreatan when you moved there at age nine
3: yeah uh Much different from Seoul at that time either. Yeah. I mean, this was an island that was sort of lost in time. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was before sort of electronic Wi-Fi. So, uh, and it was too far away from the mainland to have real wires connecting. So, you know, even electricity was uh, uh, limited in that it would, the island, the homes would have electricity from, I would say, 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. That Mm -hmm. was it. Um, yeah one phone on the entire island
2: oh my goodness so was this a sort of like a pastoral uh, bliss for you or it was hell it was hell hell. (laughs)
3: and and my mom explained it to me every year while we were going that this where we're going is the furthest place on earth (laughs) and it was because from London or from New York it was a three-day three-day journey To actually get to my grandmother's home.
2: Oh, my goodness. Um,
3: We would take the plane. um, And that time, because of the Soviet Union, we couldn't sort of go directly. We had to go around the Soviet uh, airspace. So there was no direct flights. We had to stop at Anchorage, which was about an eight-hour flight. And from Anchorage, we would refuel and then go to Korea, which was another 10 hours. So it was about an 18-hour flight. Um, (laughs) We would land in Seoul take another flight to a, a southern city called Gwangju. It was about, about a 45 minute flight. Uh, and then from there, we would have to take a cab to uh, so an, uh, no, Wando, which was uh, an island that was connected to a bridge at least. And from there, we had to catch a ferry uh, mm-hmm. towards Wando. So but because that island was so small, it didn't have a dock for a ferry. So a hmm. boat, a little fishing boat, would have to come out 30 minutes into the middle of the ocean and we would transfer from a ferry to a fishing boat in the middle of the ocean. What? And I I didn't know how to swim and I still don't know how to swim because it was so scary. It was so traumatic uh, having to transfer in the middle of the ocean from a big boat to a small boat. And then uh, that small boat, we would uh, be uh, boated into the island and from there on, it would be about a 30-minute walk to my grandmother's home.
2: Wow. Mm. Wow, Chef. That is that is something else. Um, but, you know, through that trauma, I guess, or, you know, many multiple trips there, it seems that you have incorporated this richness of, 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 of sort of an understanding of, of organic ingredients. And I don't mean that in the today's sense of the word uh, <laughs> how, how food works and uh the, yeah, what'd you say the true
1: definition
3: it? of korean food for me uh was my meals at that island um korean food has always been medicinal uh mm-hmm. it was always more about health um uh, mm. korean restaurants we don't have a history because uh mm-hmm. of so many wars and, and so many battles um Mm. Places like France, uh, European countries, even in Japan, there's hundreds of years of uh, restaurant history where many chefs have sort of carried the 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 the, the national cuisine through books and restaurants. Mm. Korea didn't have that. Korea yeah. it, it was always about the mom cooking for their family. So you you know to make. Your health, your family healthy. They had to first pick the, you know, choose the best ingredients, mm. and to make them eat these ingredients, they had to make it delicious. It wasn't sort of like at a restaurant where you make it delicious to get more <laughs> to customers to it. come. Yeah. No, that was not it.
2: Yeah,
1: um,
3: Korea to has manage. been suffering from malnutrition uh, until the six sixties uh,
0: mm.
3: because it was so war-ridden. Um and you know, getting healthy ingredients was a battle in its own right, but mm-hmm. to make it taste good, so your kids would eat as much as possible to be to grow to be healthy, was the mum's mom's job, uh, and that's where Korean. I think that really is what Korean food is to me as a cuisine.
2: Wow. Well, thank you so much for explaining. We're going to we need to cut to a quick little commercial break. But after the break, I want to talk about how your experience in French fine dining training has influenced some of your cooking. So we'll be right back chatting more with Huni Kim.
1: During this time, it's more important than ever to support our friends and neighbors in the restaurant industry. Restaurant Workers Community Foundation has set up a national COVID-19 crisis relief fund. The money they raise will provide direct relief to individual restaurant workers, support other nonprofits serving restaurant workers in crisis, and offer zero-interest loans for restaurants to get back up and running. Visit restaurantworkerscf.org to donate today. And if you need a little extra motivation, you can DM your $20 donation to RWCF's co-founder, John DeBerry, on Twitter and he'll give you directions for making a signature quarantine cocktail. Donate now at restaurantworkerscf.org.
2: Okay, and we're back. You're listening to Eat Your Words, and today's guest is Chef Huni Kim, whose latest book is called, hers, his first book, that is, <laughs> but it just came out, and it's called My Korea. Um, wow. So, Chef, thank you so much for explaining sort of the roots, the purpose of, of real traditional korean cooking um i noticed throughout this book that uh well also in your experience you you've cooked at masa but you've also cooked at danielle mm. so that is a uh, danielle balud sort of namesake restaurant and uh i love uh, the look of one dish it looks very perfect for like a rainy day like today it is your braised short ribs which uh, you say yes. yeah you say it's a sort of uh A nod to your French training at Danielle. Mm.
1: Tell me about Um,
2: that. Yeah.
3: So as I mentioned before, braising is is a popular technique in Korea. But Korea still, most houses don't have ovens. Mm -hmm. Um, An oven in, you know, European or even the U.S., uh, every kitchen has one. Or every stove (laughs) comes with an oven. Uh, But not in Korea. Uh, Korea, it's all about sort of just uh, cooking on stove, the stove, uh, yeah. or or traditionally direct fire. Mm, um, mm-hmm. So um, when you know when we say braise in Korean, we're not talking specific temperatures and timing, which uh-huh. in French cuisine, that's sort of how you braise. Mm-hmm. Um, and I learned uh, working at Danielle. The perfect braise for a short rib was at 325 degrees Fahrenheit for two hours and 20 minutes. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, stuff like that, those techniques I did transfer to my my book because this book is published here and here most people have um, ovens. But Mm -hmm. even the Korean cookbooks that are famous in Korea, um, they don't have directions of how to braise in an oven, <laughs> uh, they don't give times. They don't yeah. give um, specific temperatures. Um, and Korean books, Korean cookbooks, are famous for not giving measurements of salt, soy sauce, or <laughs> other fermented ingredients because they understand they're all different. Yeah. So you know, and even here, a, a teaspoon of kosher salt and a teaspoon of Himalayan salt. Huge difference. More than double the salinity in the Himalayan salts. Um, Right. But, you know, at least here, most people are familiar with kosher salt and Himalayan salt and to sort of distinguish. Mm
0: -hmm.
3: um, But, you know, just in Korea, people don't have ovens. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, So it it was that and also learning how to cook at Danielle. Um, It was important for me to sort of know the foundation, which was the mother sauces, the basic techniques of sautéing, braising, uh, and that I applied to me as a chef, actually. Mm -hmm. I, I, um, I needed to know how to cook the classic Korean dishes, the traditional Korean recipes. And Mm -hmm. um, at first, I I, I did not know how to do that. I never worked at a Korean restaurant. There were no Korean chefs when I was uh, learning how to cook. Um, Hmm. And this was, you know, 15, 20 years ago. Um, So that's why I learned, you know, I worked at Danielle. That's why I Hmm. worked at Masa, because I wanted to work at a Korean restaurant under a Korean chef. But at that time, there weren't any. Wow. Um, So... You know, these recipes I sort of figured out on my own um, based on tasting a lot of Korean cuisine back in Korea. Uh, And even now, I'm in the process of learning traditional Korean food.
2: Right. And that's why
3: I go back four, five times a year. Right. Uh, I was lucky enough to meet somebody who I really respect uh, and who has uh, taught me the past 10 years um, so much about Mm -hmm. Korean cuisine that uh, I was able to, or confident enough to write a book like this because I feel like I know more about Korean food than anybody in this country, at least.
2: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Oh my goodness. That makes me wonder, Chef, do you think that today's young, let's say young upstart or, or not even, like some young folks just thinking about maybe becoming a chef, does it, is it even helpful for them to go and train under like the French classic, you know, masters or whatever, and or or sh- could they just sidestep and uh, connect with a Korean chef like you didn't have at that time?
3: Um, so, you know, for me, what I learned at Danielle
1: mm-hmm.
3: um, at that time, um, where it was it was before. It was before per se. It was before John George. It was before uh, all these other uh, French restaurants uh, that were uh, there. It was a hundred and forty seat fine dining restaurant,
2: mm-hmm. um,
3: and we did about three hundred to three hundred and fifty covers uh, on a on a busy day. And what I learned was there's nothing impossible. In mm-hmm. a Danielle kitchen. Mm. Every restaurant I worked after that was so much easier. So to have that confidence, knowing whatever is thrown at me, I can do because I did it for two years uh, at Danielle. Mm-hmm. Uh, that I could never sort of have experienced without working for Danielle. And I still Wait. thank the chefs over okay. there. uh and, and you know, being a chef, you know, it is about cooking. It is about techniques. It is about sort of uh, finding your flavors from within to mm-hmm. showcase at your own restaurant later on. Um, mm-hmm. But a lot of it is mental. Um, yeah. So much of it is mental, where if you don't have that confidence um, and if you're nervous every day because, oh, uh, Maybe your sous chef won't show up, or maybe your line cooks won't show up, or maybe two of them won't show up, or maybe the dishwasher won't show up. Every day something's going to happen, and you have to know that you can put out same caliber of food mm-hmm. with half your staff when it comes down to it because you've done it before. You know, um, I feel like working for the great chefs, you will get experiences like that you will gain experiences like that and because of that i do recommend every cook to get into one of these big famous chefs restaurants to experience Mm -hmm. to gain that confidence because you know it's a privilege to be uh so busy yeah (laughs) uh, and so pushed yeah uh, and to gain that confidence. It is a provision. Not many restaurants, you're able to do that.
2: I see. I see. Mm-hmm. Do you think that they that could happen for somebody who's training at at Donji? You're a Michelin-starred restaurant.
3: Yes, Donji, we have four cooks cooking on the line. Mm-hmm. Um, we only have thirty-six seats, but okay. we've done 200 covers for dinner. Okay. We do six, six, we do over six seatings. Uh, because it's in a neighborhood where we have pre-theater and post-theater. Most mm-hmm. th- most restaurants are busy from 7 p.m. to 9 30, 10 p.m.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh,
3: but because of the theater, uh, we're busy at 5 p.m. because people <laughs> want to come in and, and eat before their 7 o'clock show. Uh, mm-hmm. And then some of the big theaters, uh, their show starts at 8. So by the time we get them out at 6.30 for the first for showing, we get the people coming in want to eat before the eight o'clock shows. So we do two seatings before eight o'clock.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh,
3: I, so, yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. we do get busy, but yeah, most New York restaurants,
2: uh-huh. we I have to I, be busy. I wonder if there's like the inverse of this. Could like the bedrock of fine dining for some be a Korean restaurant? And then maybe they go off to start, I don't know, a French restaurant <laughs> It speaks to their yeah, heritage.
3: Well, you know, I think the fine dining restaurants, at least in New York, um, the ingredients are very similar Mm -hmm. to that of a fine dining French restaurant or a fine dining Japanese restaurant. uh, Because ultimately fine dining or any successful restaurant is about procuring the best ingredients. Okay. Local ingredients tend to be best, uh, especially when it comes to produce Mm -hmm. Um, and because of um, the, the transportation of getting fish from Asia, getting certain spices from Africa, that's pretty easy these days. I see. So the ingredients that you find at a Danielle or at a Changsik, uh, which is a fine dining French restaurant versus a fine dining Korean restaurant, the ingredients tend to be very similar. I see. These fine dining restaurants are all using truffles, all using caviar, <laughs> <laughs> all using Japanese <laughs> fish. Um, yeah. And I think one of the best ways to learn how to cook is it's not about recipes; it's about knowing your ingredients.
0: Yeah.
3: Um, and if you know your ingredients, you can later on create dishes. Where if you learn how to cook based on recipes, without that recipe, it, it, you're lost. Mm. Um. Mm-hmm, so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just get yourself into a a, a a very good restaurant under a chef who's who's there a lot, and, right? And I right. think that's the best first
2: step. I think that brings us back to maybe the cover of this book, right? So we're we're thinking of you know this cabbage and and how you know making kimchi is going to be a little different each time, right?
3: Yes, um, yeah. and even in Korea, um, culturally. You know, kimchi was too difficult to make. Well, not too difficult, but it wasn't worth it to for each family to make. Okay. Uh, so yeah. uh, there's a term, Korean word called kimjang, basically means um, like the whole village or a bunch of families get together in late fall, uh, when cabbage is the best tasting, um, mm-hmm. and they make thousands of heads of cabbage into kimchi uh, for Ooh. the entire year for the whole Ooh, village. Got it. Or all the families, um, and I've made last year. I made four thousand heads
1: <laughs> yes. of cabbage
3: into kimchi in Korea. Um, oh wow! So um, traditionally, that's how it was done. Uh-huh. Uh, but nowadays, you know, people living in apartments in Seoul, they just buy kimchi. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the yeah. biggest complaint is it's it doesn't taste the same. There's preservatism there, and it's not healthy. When when a company or a factory makes kimchi, they have to put Uh, preservatives in or some certain chemicals in really so yeah because if you let this kimchi keep fermenting um the air is going to expand and pop the bags Uh, it's going to start leaking out of jars (laughs) Uh, it's not it's not going to be pretty and you know how kimchi smells like uh not pretty uh-huh. Um, so there is a lot of chemicals added. Okay. And whenever you add chemicals to fermentation, it doesn't ferment properly.
1: Mm. Fermentation
3: as a technique, um, you should avoid as much outside contamination, man-made chemical contamination. Um, mm. And that's why mm. in the book, I really recommend using Himalayan salt or salt, not sea salt that's been contaminated by our dirty waters, Um and using, you know, cabbage that is organic, uh, mm-hmm. not contaminated with p- pesticides. Because all of these chemicals really, um, it messes with not just the flavors, mm-hmm. but the, the, one of the reasons why fermentation is a big deal these days is because of the, uh, the probiotics. Okay. You know, how, how mm. the probiotics in the fermented foods gets into our gut biome. And our gut biome now is responsible not just for our physical health, but it's coming out that for mental health as well. And especially these days, immunity um, is is so, is is so important. And a healthy gut biome uh, really increases uh, your immunity. Um,
2: right, right. So,
3: um, you know, if you use these uh, sort of chemicals uh, in the fermentation, you lose a lot of the probiotics.
2: Got it. You know, I think you just convinced me to make my own batch of kimchi yeah, right now. It's, it's one of those things uh, that,
3: you know, it's difficult the first couple of times around. But once you get the hang of it, uh-huh. it you're, you're just going to make it by yourself because yeah. it's not difficult. It's just new. This whole right. technique and waiting for two weeks after you make it to eat it. That's a, mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a new philosophy. It's a new culture of cooking. Uh, the waiting for this fermentation, but once you do it, the, you know, you can control your food, you Mm. you know, right away, you know, nobody, you know, in Western culture recommends you eating spicy food for breakfast, right? But you make your own kimchi and you eat it for breakfast, your stomach will be so settled the entire day. You'll be less hungry. You'll have less irritation, less gas, um, and that's the power of fermentation. Yeah. It's the power of probiotics.
2: Ah, oh, man, I'm going for it. I'm going for it. And thank you so much for, you know, not not editing out, you know, all the authentic details in here. I, I love it.
3: I do give you know, a little bit of shortcuts that, you know, it might make it a little easier because we mm-hmm. live in apartments. Sure. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But ultimately, yeah, none yeah. of the really important techniques have been uh watered down. It's I make things easier, but I don't make things less, sir, if that makes sense.
2: Definitely. <laughs> yeah. Mm. I mean, there's so many more ingredients, I mean so many more recipes and dishes throughout this book that I would love to talk to about to you about, but it looks like we're just about of out of time for today. Okay. Um yeah, but actually I might as well mention that um we are going to be having another discussion in um in a couple months so at june 7th for the museum of food and drink we will have a discussion with huni kim so mark your calendars i'll be 7 p.m eastern time a virtual talk museum of food and drink uh, mofad.com so so yeah check it out i'll keep you guys posted you can follow huni kim and on his instagram and it's just huni kim right yes and uh and also the restaurants you can find from there. So I hope everyone gets their hands on my Korea. And thank you so much for talking to us about it, uh, Chef for me, Kathy. Yeah, and more to come. I hope too. Um, it's really, really a, a remarkable book with a lot more that we didn't even touched on. So um, yeah. So thanks everyone at Heritage Radio Network. Thank you, G, our Heritage Engineer Extraordinaire. And we'll see you next week on Eat Your Words. Each Your Words is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10 year anniversary celebration, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritageradio.